0: Let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we are grateful for the opportunity we have to come together. We thank you for your scriptures and the truth that's contained therein. I pray that by your Spirit, you would illumine our minds and show us the truth. This morning, help us to comprehend what was spoken by Ezekiel so long ago, but is pertinent to our lives today. Lord, help us to uh, grow in our understanding of what your great plan is. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This is week number 15 in our study of eschatology. And last week we left off with uh, Ezekiel thirty-four, twenty-two. is how far we've gotten. And as we said... In chapter 33, Ezekiel gets word that Jerusalem has been uh, taken, it has been destroyed. Um, Everything that they would have known about Jerusalem was no more. Uh, All the walls of the city were torn down. The houses were torn down. The temple was torn down. All the people of the city were killed. And... um, And so Jerusalem is completely destroyed, and the whole land of Israel, all the promised land, is now desolate. And there really is no nation of Israel other than those people who are in captivity over in Chaldea. Um, Life kind of goes on for them. Um, They are slaves, but they continue to um, be able to do some things while they're in captivity. Um, they just can't leave. And so the nation of Israel at this point, very dismal. Um, there's really no hope. The only thing they have, is, and, and Daniel's the one who discovers it, is that Jeremiah had previously prophesied that when they went into captivity, they would only stay there 70 years, and then they would be let go. But Daniel doesn't recognize that until 50 years in the future after what Ezekiel is writing here. So this is like 15, 20 years into captivity. They're there for a total of 70 years. So um, Nebuchadnezzar is still the king. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar will be uh, followed by two other kings and then finally by his uh, son who is overrun by the Persians. So that's kind of what's going to go on in Babylon. And when Babylon is overrun by the Persians, nothing happens to the Israelites. They're fine. Um, Because the Persians um, treat them well, allow them to go back to their homeland eventually. So that's what's going to happen to Israel. And so from a prophecy standpoint, there's really nothing to prophesy about the destruction of Israel. So the tenor Of the book of Ezekiel changes with chapter 34. Dramatically. And it talks for 15 chapters about restoration. And um, we're going to try and walk through those 15 chapters. And again this is um, a prophecy about what's going to be true in Israel in the future. But I personally do not believe it's talking about when they return in 50 years. I think it's talking about a distant future time that is still yet future today. And so we'll see why I believe that as we go through some things today. Um, I really think today's that we'll get some time frame references that you have to deal with, that you have to reconcile uh, as to how you think about eschatology. Um, We saw in the first 10 verses of chapter 34 where God judged the leaders, the, what he calls the shepherds, which would have been the priests of the nation of Israel. And he removes them and says, I'm against you. So those are not part of the people of God. And then we saw where God himself becomes their shepherd and he brings them back. He binds the broken. He heals the sick. Um, he finds the lost all these actions done by God himself, not by any leader or anybody else. God says that he will do it, and he'll bring them back to the mountains of Israel. Is what he calls the land where they're at three different times. And so this is God speaking and God working. And then, in kind of surprising to me, in verses 16 through 22, of those who are Israelites... God removes some of them. He removes, he says, those who are strong and fat. Um, and he judges between one sheep and another. Meaning even though they've made it to the promised land, not all of those people who are there are going to be, are going to remain in, as the sheep of God. He's going to remove some of them. And those are the fat and the... Um, and the strong those who have been trampling down uh, other people those who have been polluting the water that they need to drink those who have been pushing them out of their way so basically self-centered looking out for themselves to the harm of all the other sheep and God removes us so when we come to this verse that we're going to look at today beginning in um, verses 23 and 24 some of the sheep some of the Israelites have been removed from the people of God. So, and this is, you know, you got to figure out when this is, and we'll see that today. And so, even though they may have made it through the tribulation, they may have made it to the promised land, God may have gathered them from all the nations, some of those he calls out. And we don't know how many there are, um, but there's some. And so not all these Israelites remain the people of God and remain in the land. They're cast out. So how does that work with our eschatology and uh, with some of the things that are said in the New Testament? We'll go look at those next week. But for this week, let's start in verse 23. And you see where... um, God says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Okay, so all of a sudden you get this reference um, in the, in the middle of this calling out and God separating the sheep, you get this reference to a shepherd who goes by the name of David. Now, clearly, the most prominent David in the Bible would be King David, right? And so that's what comes into your mind. So, is God here going to resurrect King David and set him as shepherd over the nation of Israel? which at one time he was, right? Historically, 400 years before this, 450 years before this, God did establish David as king over all of Israel, the second king of Israel, out of um, the total of three. And he was the, the main shepherd. That's what the scriptures call him. That's who he was. He was the leader. Um, even though he had a, a troubled leadership at the very least. You know, his own son came against him and tried to kill him. Um, His predecessor Saul tried to kill him. David was often on the run in caves and that kind of stuff during uh, much of his reign, but yet he was a man after God's heart. He's the one that God supernaturally gave the uh, plans for the temple that Solomon built. Um, The scriptures say that God spoke those to David, So David's the one who recorded those so Solomon could build what God wanted um, and was the most victorious king um, of the kings of Israel, uh, certainly prominent above all the others. So the question is, is God here going to resurrect David and set him as king over the nation of Israel again, or is this speaking about something else? Now, I'll tell you, I fully believe that God is going to resurrect King David and all the other Old Testament prophets and those who were faithful to God. I believe they'll all be resurrected, but I don't believe that David will be set as king again or as prince or as the chief shepherd of Israel. I think this is talking about something else. And so, as I thought about this, okay, how can I... Explain what I mean by that. The best place I believe to go is back to the covenant that was given to King David. Um, It's back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is a a time when David has um, built his own house in Jerusalem. He didn't live in Jerusalem, and then he built a house in Jerusalem. And it was grandest and glorious. And yet the Ark of the Covenant was still in the tabernacle, in the tent. Um, and David started to move it to Jerusalem and then stopped and left it, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but left it in the household outside of the city. And God greatly blessed that household. And so about seven years later, David said, okay, let's move it into the city of Jerusalem. And they did. And David said, it's not right for me to have this great house and for the Ark of the Covenant, the, where God had literally dwelt, to be an attempt. And so David told Nathan that, Nathan being um, the chief priest at the time. And Nathan said, do all this in your heart. And then God came to Nathan and said, nay, nay, uh, David is not going to build my house. And so this is the, the explanation by God to David that he's not going to be allowed to build the house of God. Um, so it begins in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's just begin in verse 8. And then I'll read about 10 of these verses. Now, therefore, you shall say to my servant David, this is God speaking to Nathan, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. You, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of great men who are on the earth. I'll also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I'll give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete, And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure for, before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So you can imagine David's great disappointment. That he wanted to build the house of God, uh, a, a grand temple for the Ark of the Covenant. Nathan told him he could, and then Nathan comes back and says, you can't. And that your son, one that I'll raise up from you, will build me a house. And of course, that's speaking of Solomon and the temple that Solomon built, which is the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. So that temple didn't last all that long, Um, maybe 400 years, a little less, um, that that temple actually stood until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. But I believe there are three or four verses in this prophecy or in this covenant or in this promise given to David that speak of the future. So I want to read those. Without reading the interpose about Solomon. And you'll see how it just flows. So it begins in verse, I believe, 10, 10 and 11, 16, and really just 16. So reading those without reading the verses in between. Verse 10 I'll also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the days I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares that the Lord will make a house for you. Down to 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so when God talks about a house, he's not talking about a literal house. Some of your translations may even say it. He's talking about a dynasty, uh, a reign that will go on forever. And God says, I'll establish it, and then it will last forever. And he's promising this clearly from Nathan by God to King David. So this is a promise given to David um, that he never forgot that he wrote about in the Psalms, that he remembered uh, all the days of his life. And you remember that just before he died, David appointed Solomon as the next king. then uh, One of his sons had gone out into the fields and gathered a lot of people together, and they coronated him, king of Israel. And when that word came to David... David then, with grandeur, in Jerusalem, in the palace, appointed his son. And it terrified those who were out in the field. And they ultimately, ultimately, David's son Solomon has him killed, has the other guy who was appointed king killed. And you can read about all that in the Chronicles and in Kings. But this is a promise given to David that the scripture speaks of in many other places, so I want to look at some of those over in the Psalm, just to show you that this is a theme that it remains in the minds of Israel, that David's kingdom would be established forever. So we could go to a lot of different places, but I just picked out a couple in Psalm. Uh, look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89, there's several verses in here, but um, look first at verses 3 and 4. I won't read the whole psalm. Verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So there's a repeat of that promise that was given to David. Then look down in verse 19. Once you spoke in visions to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. And then down in verse 28. My loving-kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I'll establish his descendants forever in his throne as the days of heaven. So, and you can read the verses that I left out from 21 down to 28. They're all about King David and what God did for him. So when you get down to 28 and he says, um, I will keep. For him forever, that him is King David is who he's talking about, and his descendants. So these verses, then keep on reading in like 33 of this chapter. But I will not, but I will not break my statutes and do not keep my commandments. Then I will punish their. Hold on, 33 through 37. Yeah. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break my loving kindness from him, again, David, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. So this verse 31 through like 33, where he talks about judging them, that's where we're at now in the nation of Israel in the time of Ezekiel. If they don't obey me and they commit iniquity, I will judge them. That's where we're at. They have been judged. They were uh, an abomination before God, and he judged them. And then after that, he says, but I will not break my loving kindness to David. So the covenant with David, even in the time of Ezekiel, is reaffirmed by this prophecy in Psalm. It's, they're going, if they disobey me, I will judge them, but I will not break my covenant with David. So that covenant with David lasts through all the judgments of Israel. And it's right here in Psalm. It's exactly what it says. So, the covenant with David is still intact, even while the land of Israel is desolate and they're in captivity in Babylon, God says, I will not lie to David. I will not forsake my covenant. Now, there's more later. And you notice that God says that he calls on the, um, the sun and the moon to be the witnesses of that, those that never change. He'll do that again in another psalm that we'll get to. Look at Psalm 132. And again, there are a lot of places we could go to affirm this and in even a lot of the other prophecies. Um, we could we could go and look, but I don't think we need to go that far So in 132 look at verse 10For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back of the fruit of your body I will set." Upon your throne So this is saying from one of David's descendants Will sit on the throne of David which at the time Ezekiel's prophesying doesn't exist the city doesn't even exist But here it is in psalm written, you know written hundreds of years before um, Nebuchadnezzar that The throne of David will be established. That God will not forsake that covenant. Then keep reading in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priest... Also, I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. So here God is saying, I've chosen Zion is the place where I want to dwell. And Zion, of course, is Jerusalem. And, and you can see that in many places in Scripture, that, that Zion is the city of Jerusalem. So God says, I've chosen Jerusalem. That's where I desire to stay. And then look down in verse 25 of 132. It can't be 25, right? No, no, no. 13 through 18 is what I wanted to go. I've read part of this, but look at verse 17 where I left off. There all cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. So when you, anywhere in scripture where it talks about a horn it's talking about a seed of power. You can see that over in Revelation and spades because it always talks about many horns being there, the beast with seven horns, and it, it speaks of power. So when it says the horn of David, is talking about the dynasty of David, those who will come after him, um, that seed of power that will once again be his. So here in the Psalms, God is say, saying, that promise that I gave to David, I will not break. I will not go back on it. I will not lie to David. I mean that's repeated over and over and again we could go to other places where you could see that turn to Isaiah chapter 9 to a very very familiar verse to you Isaiah chapter 9 and you you know this verse in verse 7 Well, maybe verse 6 was For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace. And then get this on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. For then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So there in that promise that we often read at Christmas, right? That Jesus Christ would be born is the promise that he, that reign, the one who reigns, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the eternal father, the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, where is he? Seated on the throne of David very clear right that this one who is promised and will come on the throne of David and over his kingdom he'll reign so there's the promise and we all know we've certainly looked at this enough this is a promise of the coming Messiah Jesus Christ and that he will be on the throne of David so it's pretty clear all right, then you look over in Jeremiah 22, and again, I just picked out a couple of these that to me are just slam dunks about Jesus Christ coming and sitting on the throne of David. Verse 20 of chapter 33. So, on your piece of paper, you need to change that because don't I have 22 there? It's really 33. 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that the day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priest, my ministers. So, this is reverse logic, right? If you can break the sun and the moon coming up day and night at their appointed times, then you can break my covenant with David. So what's the possibility of breaking the sun and the moon following one another? None, right? So he's saying there's no possibility that I'll break my covenant with David. Here's Jeremiah, a contemporary of Ezekiel, speaking the pro- about the promise of David on his throne. All right. And then read a couple of verses later, in 25, and he does the same kind of thing again. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of the heaven and the earth I have not established, then I would reject my descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. So again, God says, if you could rearrange the host of the heavens, then I could break my covenant with David. But of course we can't. And so of course he won't break his covenant with David. This is how sure the promise that God gave to David 400 years earlier still stands in the day of Jeremiah, in the day of Ezekiel, and in today's day. Right. Promised. Right. And that's why the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Going oh, it's crucial. It's so beautiful because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, mm. you, <laughs> and I mm. are going to be reigning in that kingdom with the Lord and all those saints that you've always wanted to talk to. Yeah, they'll be there. Well, and um, I'm not exactly sure where the, the New Testament saints will be. Maybe they're scattered around the earth to help Jesus Christ rule the world. That's kind of what I believe, but I don't know that. Um, it says it will reign with him, but... will we'll also go to Jerusalem. Oh, sure, sure. But I, the tabernacles. I actually think that the saints will rule over the nations and that we'll lead the nations to go and parade before Jesus Christ to give him honor. They're not believers, all of them, but they still honor the king, right? I mean, you, you honor the king who's over you. Um, look at Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Very familiar to you, but just to show it to you that this is the way that Matthew understood it the record and the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the Jews, and this is who Matthew, you know, is a very Jewish book, look back to Abraham and they look back to David as the predecessors of Jesus Christ. And there's a reason for that. Because the original promises were given to Abraham for the kingdom, the nation, all the nations will be blessed to you, all of that. And then Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. And they understood that. And that's why Matthew references those two. Because those are the two covenant promises that God gave unconditionally that will not be broken to Abraham and then to David. All the others that God gave to the nation of Israel about driving the people out of their land and, you know, all, were all conditional on obedience. But the one to Abraham and the one to David, not conditional. God puts no conditions on it whatsoever. He tells David, if your sons don't obey me, then they will be judged. And that's clear that the nation of Israel has been judged in the time of Ezekiel, but the covenant still stands. And so I believe that when you talk about David and his throne and his kingdom enduring forever, you're talking about Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of David. That's what the reference is to. And so back in Ezekiel, when he says, My servant David, the reason he uses David is because Jesus Christ has not been revealed yet. They don't know who the Messiah is or is going to be. So they can't give him any other name than David. But it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ coming. So that then sets the time frame reference for what we're talking about. Because when in the history of Israel or in the plan of God revealed in Scripture, does Jesus Christ ever reign on a throne other than the throne in heaven of God? When does he ever reign on the throne of David? Only in the millennial kingdom. No other time. And so this sets the time frame reference for chapter 34 of Ezekiel to be the millennial reign. I believe the beginning of the millennial reign. Because think about it. Is God going to reign for 500 years and then cast out those of Israel who don't believe in him? No. No. He's going to do that at the very beginning so that he might purge for himself a people and then he reigns over them. So that's why he's already, before we get here, called out the, the leaders, called out those who don't really believe in him and now all you have is left the, lame she- the, uh, the sheep who, and think about who they are. They're broken, they're lost, they're sick um, and they're lean. Those sheep need their shepherd. They lean on their shepherd. They depend on their shepherd. The fat sheep don't. The leaders who lead the people, who feed off of the people, don't need a shepherd. And so God has removed all those who don't need a shepherd and just left those who do, meaning those who truly believe he is their shepherd. Oh, no doubt. During his ministry, until John
1: chapter 12, 11 and 12, if you go read those two chapters, and that's when this final cutting off and offering of the kingdom then stopped, and it all began to look towards the kingdom. You're teaching us about That is one of them. It literally says, the Lord literally
0: says, the kingdom could be ushered in right now, Israel, if
1: you will, dot, dot,
0: dot. Right. And, you know, there were times... In Israel's history even after the split of the nations when it looked like it was going to happen like in the reign of Hezekiah tremendous tremendous devotion to God in the reign of Hezekiah but the next king is a bad king and doesn't continue it on so there were times even after the nations had split when it looked like this was going to happen but it never did and Jesus Christ never never Anywhere in scripture is pictured as sitting on the throne of David in the present. It's always future. And so that is why I believe chapter 34 is a change. And Ezekiel is no longer talking about his present day, which all of the first 33 chapters were. And now he's looking to a distant time, to a distant future. Let me show you something um, for just a second. Go back to 2 Samuel. I skipped over something, but it's pretty important because remember this promise was given to David, right? And David heard it. He was disappointed he couldn't build the temple, but he was good with it because it was God's plan. And this prayer in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel you, you ought to take some time from 18 to the end and read this prayer of David. It is astounding. But look at just the first few verses of it. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. Here is David's prayer back to God just after he heard Samuel speak these words. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far. And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. This is the custom of man, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you, for you know your servant, O Lord God, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know so david himself understood that god was talking about something far distant according to the great plan of god that was much more than what he had done for david and it was according for god's name for your word and according to your own heart so god david understood that God was orchestrating his great plan and that it was going to be much more grand than what he had done for David and that it was in the distant future. And that, I, that I believe, is not 400 years into the future. It's at least 3,000 years into the future, which is where we're at today. Which
1: is why verse 24, what you just said, is so important. Yes.
0: Right, verse 24. I mean, you ought to read this prayer of David. It is astounding because he understood clearly what Samuel had just said to him. Without any doubt, he understood what was going on. And and this prayer is amazing. So David understood that. We should understand that. David is going to be resurrected. And I believe at the beginning of the millennial reign. But he will not be the shepherd of Israel. He'll be one of the sheep underneath Jesus Christ. And by the way, the 12 apostles rule over the 12 kingdoms of the nation of Israel. So Jesus Christ promised them, when I come in my kingdom, you will reign over the 12 tribes. And by the way, in the millennial reign, we'll see it in Ezekiel, there are sacrifices. There are burnt offerings. There are sin offerings. And you go, why would that be? Since Jesus, because it commemorates what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Old Testament, look forward to what he would do. The millennial reign looks back on what he accomplished.
1: In the face of the tabernacles, which precedes the, the is a, an event that they gathered to reflect
0: on the wanderings when the Lord took care of them. And we will be called to Jerusalem right. to participate in that face of the tabernacle. And, <laughs> I'll stop. In Ezekiel, he'll literally... Have a man with a measuring rod go and measure the temple of the millennial kingdom. I mean, painstakingly, three chapters worth of measuring the temple in Ezekiel. That's how sure and how accurate God thinks about the temple in which Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David. We'll look at more of this later to come, but that's why I believe chapter 34 is talking about the millennial reign and the beginning of the millennial reign. You you have to decide for yourself what you think. Right? So just keep studying. Thanks for your time.